0: Welcome to New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Kristen Turner, and my interview will be an unusual one for this podcast as I have two guests today. They are Dr. Guthrie Ramsey, Edmund J. and Louise W. Kahn Term, Professor of Music at the University of Pennsylvania, and Dr. Carlene Brown, Professor of Music at Seattle Pacific University. They are with me to talk about The Heart of a Woman, the life and music of Florence B. Price. Tragically, the author of this much-anticipated biography, Dr. Raylinda Brown, died in 2017. Guthrie stepped in to complete the final edits on the manuscript and wrote the foreword to the book, while Carlene wrote an afterword about her sister Raylinda's professional work and lifelong promotion of Florence Price's music. In fact, it is doubtful that Florence Price's compositions would be experiencing the resurgence in popularity it is enjoying today, were it not for the tireless work of Raylinda Brown. This biography places Price's life and music within the context of genteel, middle-class African-American culture and the active Black classical music scene in Chicago in the 1930s and 40s. Brown also analyzes Price's major pieces, teasing out the ways Price embedded influences from Black musical traditions into her concert music. Thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Happy to be here.
2: Thank you.
0: Um, before we set down to talk about the book, I'd really like to start with talking about um, Raylinda Brown, our uh, the author of this excellent monograph. Um, I never got to meet her, but I've heard so much about her from people who uh, were colleagues of hers in the Society for American Music. We just had a conference a few weeks ago, and our current president was talking about her then. Um, and she she's just always held up as a model of just a great... Scholar and and obviously a beloved person to her friends and I I'd, I'd love to hear you talk about her and her work first before we talk about the the book so perhaps Carlene you could start and and tell our listeners a little bit about your sister
2: well thank you Kristen I appreciate this opportunity um, it's still very difficult to talk about Relinda in this way um, so she is she was the oldest of four um, I am number three. Um, but she was the big sister, and she paved the way in the family as one of the first to earn a PhD. Um, she attended University of Connecticut, and then went on to get a master's at Yale, and then the PhD. And so she's always been that role model and advocate for education, higher education, um, throughout our extended family. Um, and I describe Ray as incredibly humble. Um, As I have learned even more about my sister these past three years, it is stunning how I am unfolding all of these different avenues in different ways. She touched people. And yet when you spent time with Raylinda, she never wore a title. You would never know she was a vice president or even a provost. It was Raylinda. And she just quietly did the work. But what she taught all of us is that work, the work in academia, it mattered. Um, She was not frivolous with her time. Um, She was dedicated to her students, her roles that she played in academia. And she was very dedicated to the story of Florence Price. And I've read many papers of hers as she spoke um, at Oral beginning orientations at universities. And she would talk about being the first and the only. And Relinda understood what it meant to be the first and the only in academia. She understood that as part of her relationship with Florence Price. And so as she talked to first-generation students or students of color, she would use Price as an example, not so much her life, but Price as an example of how you'll do it anyways. It's okay to be the first. It's okay to be the only. Belinda understood that. And you do it anyways. And she was just this major support person for whether it be that freshman through all of us, including myself, including Guthrie Ramsey to encourage us that the, the Academy mattered and that, um, There would be a support system if we just believed in ourselves to just continue to move forward. So I owe my sister a lot in terms of how I have gotten to be where I am as a professor. She actually encouraged me in her last days to go up for professor. It's important. And I know she's had this impact on Dr. Ramsey as well. And so the totality of Ray's work, it really has reflected in how she identified with Florence Price. She wrote about that in the book. Um, they they had a similar path personally and professionally. And um, that's why it's partly an extraordinary book is because Relinda understood Florence Price.
0: Did you want to add to that as well, Guthrie?
1: Oh, yes. I know that I am one of the uh, people, as uh, Carly pointed out, uh, who benefited from, uh, Ray Linda's uh, generosity and her uh, unique ability to uh, share what she knows and have it uh, make an impact. Uh, I considered her uh, one of my first and most important uh, mentors in musicology uh, I Attended the University of Michigan beginning in 1989, where she was a professor until I think she was on leave my first year. And then she left, but we had met. And uh, when I entered the, the field, everyone that I met uh, who knew anything about, uh, you know, Black music would say, You have to meet Raylinda Brown. You have to meet Raylinda Brown. And when I did, we hit it off, and she took me under her wing, and she never let me go. I, I, uh, I was, uh, in fact, a research assistant uh, for her when she was uh, working on the, the manuscript. Uh, she gave me the, uh, the task of reading The uh, Chicago Defender from uh, 1919, I guess, until the, some point in the 1950s. And you know, of course, being a young graduate student, I'm like, "Is this lady crazy?" <laughs> this is like, you mean, oh, you mean every single issue of the, <laughs> every single page of of the Chicago Defender? And she was, in fact, just teaching me. Yes, this is what this is called research, and this is what it takes. And uh, of course, she was a role. As you can read from this book, she's a role model in um, uh, in diligence and. Turning over every stone, stone that she could, in order to tell this uh, marvelous story. Um, yeah.
0: Uh, so, how did you get involved with finishing this book? I, it sound, and and um, you know, at what point was she at in the um, writing process when she died in 2017?
2: Um, the book had been sitting in a box. Um, and just moved where Raylinda moved. She, um, her life became very involved in academia, um, administration. And so the final edits in putting the book together, um, she just um, didn't have the time, given how um, very proud of Raylinda being able to achieve the role of provost, but what it took for her to take on those levels of uh, responsibilities In administration. And so before she passed, um, I, of course, knew of the book. I knew where it was. She asked me to publish it. She said, it's done. Um, And she also asked me to ask Dr. Ramsey. Um, She trusted him. She knew that he would know what she would want to carry this forward. And so,, um, I had known of Guthrie Ramsey, certainly. Uh, uh, Guy Ramsey was part of Relinda's very close circle, um, but it was a phone call a um, few months after she passed, where I simply called him and asked him um, if he would do this, be the editor, and making sure that it was going to be presented in the way that Relinda would would have hoped. And I am grateful for now this brother of mine, Guthrie Ramsey, who immediately said yes and set aside all of his projects to uh, shepherd this. Um, And so it was done with uh, care and love, and um, it wasn't someone from the outside looking at Raylinda's work. Um, There was a personal connection with Guthrie. And um, even though he didn't know it at the time when he said yes, Linda wanted it to be him. So there's a great gratitude from my family toward Guthrie Ramsey because it's been beautifully done.
1: And that's, for me, is the most fascinating part of this because uh, when we started talking about uh, moving this forward to publication, uh, Carlin actually didn't say that (laughs) Linda asked me (laughs) to do it. And uh, I didn't learn that until... Uh, everything had been done, which made it uh, uh, even more magical and and certainly more meaningful. And so what I inherited uh, was uh, a, a, a big stack of manuscript and all of the histories, the scholars will know about this, all of the histories of reader's reports and responses she had had to the book, I was uh, surprised to find one of my readers' reports in there from the nineties, which I have completely forgotten I had done. Uh, and uh so you and then in the manuscripts you had Ray Linda's uh notes to herself uh about you know this, that, or another thing that she uh was questioning or working through. And so it was just a matter of, you know, understanding at what point she had uh, stopped the writing process, what things were and had been incorporated from the readers' reports, and then I saw my job as uh, making sure that the book uh, met a contemporary standard uh for where african American music scholarship is, for instance in terms of terminology and and other kinds of insights that uh you know Ray Linda was certainly saying, but would be put another way in uh in this today's uh moment so it was a fascinating uh conversation I was having with someone and 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 don't forget this part. I was seriously intimidated because Ray Linda was my mentor and I would never want to change anything that she had written because I knew the type of scholar she was, is that she said what she meant and she meant what she said. So it was with much care and much, uh, you know, uh, 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 respect that I I kind of got it, too, because I was a a series editor at the University of California Press for a decade uh, following my other mentor, Sam Floyd. So I knew what needed to happen. It was just a matter of making sure that all of these uh, things came together and and that the book, as Ray Linda would say, make sure that it was hanging together. That's what she would always say.
0: (laughs) Well, I can imagine it. It must be hard to edit someone else's work when you can't talk to them anymore and sort of check, is this what you meant? Have I said, you know, have I got this right? I can see how, particularly for someone that obviously you respected so much, as you've made clear. So, but certainly um, as a reader, uh, I think you did a great job. So (laughs) thank you so much for your work on this. Um, Perhaps we could turn now to Price. And um, she has is experiencing something of a moment, um, so perhaps more people uh, know of her now than say would have ten years ago. But just to make sure all our listeners know, can one of you just give us the sort of brief overview of her life, just to sort of orient people, as uh, before we talk about some more specific issues?
1: Well, uh, Florence Price uh, was uh, born in Little Rock, Arkansas in 1887, and she died in 1953. She, uh, her claim to fame is that she was the first African-American woman to have a major, uh, work played by a, uh, professional major, uh, orchestra. Uh, the, as Raylinda t- relates uh, this uh, story, by the way, Raylinda is a beautiful storyteller. This is a book that will make you want to turn every page because she takes us not only from uh, re- the starting point of Florence Price's life, but she traces her uh, lineage so back to uh, her uh, ancestors who were enslaved. And so, what you have in this in this book is not only the the story of a, an important uh and innovative composer, but you have the history of African Americans from uh, the point of uh, uh, the emancipation all the way up to the beginnings of the civil rights movement. Uh, Florence Price uh, was the uh, composer of over 300 uh, compositions, um, and uh, many of them were performed in her lifetime, Uh, but uh, not as much of it was published during her lifetime. She uh, was a contemporary of William Grant Steele. In fact, they were both born and raised in Little Rock, Arkansas. Uh, Florence Price was also a child prodigy. She began her music lessons and she was because she was from an educated black family, she uh excelled at everything she touched almost and she graduated high school by age 14. And by age 16 was off from from a Little Ar- Little Rock, Arkansas to Uh, the New England Conservatory of Music, where she uh, somehow got uh, uh, interested in in composition and studied with composition professors there. She was a pianist. She was an organist. She was the writer of many, many uh, children's tunes. She uh, supported herself by teaching. And uh, she was, at one point in her life, Uh, a an accompanist for silent films so she is an incredibly uh, accomplished woman who uh, whose time has come so she was really really you know hot news in the 30s and the 1930s and the 1940s and it's amazing to witness her uh, renaissance in this contemporary moment
0: um, you mentioned that Price came from an educated family, and one of the things that um, really one of the threads that Raylinda follows throughout this book is um, the influence of class on her life. And um, I think it's fair to say that she was from the co- what what was called at the time, and historians call the colored aristocracy. So these are educated. Um, families who were prominent in the black community in their in their various towns. Her father was a dentist. Her husband was a lawyer who grew up in, or first husband was a lawyer who grew up in the black elite in Washington D.C. And can you talk a little bit about how her background in the colored aristocracy and um, in, in this sort of black elite um, influenced her life, but also. Um, where the role of color of classical music was within that that social set within the black community?
1: Well, certainly the uh, uh, the music that she uh, wrote and that she uh, presented to the world was a combination of the uh, oral traditions that were present in uh, the African-American community wed to the forms and structures of Western art music. So it w- she was certainly from a literate tradition of music making, but she also saw her connections to uh, people who were not uh, privileged to have been uh, educated, people who were mandated by the law to not be able to read. And in fact, uh, her family, beginning with her her parents and perhaps her grandparents believed so much in education that they believed it was their mission to educate those who were less fortunate. Uh, At the same time, she had all of the aspirations that any of her white male colleagues did she wanted her work to be published. She wanted it to get the widest uh, hearing. She wanted major uh, organizations to commission works from her. And she wanted to be known as a, an innovator and an experimenter.
0: So she she grows up in Little Rock. she goes to the New England Conservatory of Music for her first uh, for for college, and then later she was she took a lot of composition classes in in various places in Chicago. I mean it's really quite um, noticeable how much she just continued to work on her craft long after she you know, had already been a professional musician for many years. Um, can you, what was her, I guess, role and um, influence during her lifetime as an educator and as a composer?
1: I think that she saw them as one and the same. When you grow up in a uh, Black activist environment, uh, many, many artists, uh, believe that part of their mission through that art is to educate, is to uplift, is to, uh, I don't want to use the word propaganda, that music was propaganda, but certainly art was a vehicle for uh, for uplift. Uh, the, but the thing that we need to really highlight, and it's something that uh, Raylinda uh, stresses throughout the book, that as a woman of color, emphasis woman, there were certain um, uh, 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 strictures that she was bound to, for instance, when she left New England Conservatory, she just didn't head off to her artist Garrett to uh, begin writing. She came home and uh, started to teach, uh, to started to teach others. And it seems as if the music took a back seat when she uh, left to teach at Clark Atlanta University, what is now known as Clark Atlanta University, that's when she began to uh, uh, teach formally beyond the the studio that she had set up in Little Rock. So she kept going with uh, uh, trying to combine her uh, need and mission to teach with her, uh, artistic output. So I think, particularly being a woman, and particularly uh, being a Black woman, those two things were really hard to, to separate.
0: Well, you, you bring up these challenges that she faced in her life um, that were, I think, rooted in her um, identity, uh, you know, that she was a Black woman. Can you talk a little bit more about um, the ways in which she encountered those challenges and what she was able and was not able to do to kind of get out of the systems that are, you know, were definitely set up to keep her from being successful.
1: Well, number one, she was very persistent. Uh, just imagine just how she began her career as a 16 year old. <laughs> <laughs> a a a black young woman going across the country to New England Conservatory to study. Uh, who would expect her to excel in that situation? But in fact, she did. She graduated uh, high school as valedictorian, I think, and by the time she finished New England Conservatory. She was one of the best soloists because they put her uh, her uh, senior recital. She was placed as the last soloist. Okay, so that means that she was she was the ticket, as I say. Okay, um, so she had this determination, and even when she started uh, raising children, as uh, you know, as women were expected to be the you know the head you know, domestic person in charge, she would uh, start writing children's songs to kind of, and and many uh, uh, women artists have to do that. Whereas you have, if you're a visual artist and you're a woman and you start having kids, you might stop painting and start making prints or you might, you know, you you do what you can do with young children in, in tow. So we see that pattern in her own work, so she would always find a way to do her art in whatever uh domestic situation she was in <coughs> when her uh when the uh uh reconstruction period ended in the south and it became more difficult for people, even in a thriving city like Little Rock, Arkansas, to uh make a living and to leave free lives she uh, took and her husband uh, lost his job she took on more teaching she began to uh, change what kinds of pieces that she was writing she wouldn't focus on so much on the longer bigger pieces she was writing more you know smaller pieces so I see uh, and this is what Raymenda points out in this throughout the book is that what Lawrence Price did was to shift and turn at each uh, pressure point in her life to, uh, to craft her work. At one point, she writes to a friend and says, you know, I'm so fortunate I broke my foot. Now I can sit down and finish the symphony.
0: Yeah, that was uh, quite a moment. <laughs> that shows how busy she was, I think, that that uh, she would welcome an injury just to give her some time uh, to work. Um, and it is clear that precarity and the, um, you know, despite having such a great education and uh, being from uh, a middle-class background, precarity was very much a part of her life um, her father died in terrible debt. She had periods of great poverty in her life. Um, do you see when looking at her output, do you see her crafting or, or or maybe not crafting, but you know, you started talking about how she switched to different kinds of music at different parts of her life. How do you see that sort of um, uh, I guess the the presence of that precarity in her life? Um Impacting her professional life
1: well, she was also a, a uh a shy and retiring woman right she uh often had uh, you know difficulties uh being i mean she knew how to hustle and grind, obviously, but she did have an issue with self promotion so I think more than the precarity, the economic precarity, uh, which she was determined to always win, and uh, oftentimes uh, win with the help of uh, like-minded, you know, black people who were on a similar mission to make their art and to keep it in the forefront. She... um, I, to answer your question directly i don't hear any evidence and i don't know whether ray linda points that out either that there was ever a one to one relationship with uh the say how she was going to treat her sound organization or her uh the uh the themes in her music with her economic situation i think if she did anything, is to uh, return time and time again to say the great poets of the African American tradition who are certainly addressing who are addressing these issues in their art to be the sort of message of what she wants to uh, to to put across, right? I never I never got the uh, the the feeling that. Ray was pointing her to painting uh, Florence Price as a somewhat musical journalist, if we will, if you will, or someone who was documenting her own personal experiences rather than the grand epic story of uh, from slavery to freedom uh, of African American people.
0: You were talking earlier about. Uh, the challenges she faced as a black woman, and there's certainly, as as Raylinda documents in the book, um, we might call it a pattern of exclusion throughout her life, where she, um, you know, had to fight against her own shyness to, to get performances, to um, be recognized, and um, and I was particularly struck by. Um, the time in the 30s when she was getting a lot of performances in Chicago and her symphony was performed by the Chicago Symphony. As you said at the beginning of the interview, this is one of her big claims to fame. She was the first Black woman to have a, a, a performance of a major symphony, uh, a, a work by a major orchestra. But yet when she when that um, performance was documented, it was white writers who really took the time to talk about her music. And Black writers barely talked about her. Can you talk a little bit about some of the um, challenges she faced from within the black community, as well as from without?
1: Well, uh, one of the things I learned uh, from the uh, uh, going through this Chicago defender was that uh, the editorial policies toward uh, Black music making changed and shifted uh, through the years. So when uh, you had people like Nora Douglas Holt, uh, who was both a, a composer, a classical musician, and a music journalist on the beat, uh, those people would, uh, you know, every every classical recital in any black Church at three thirty p.m. was going to be covered, <laughs> and, and nobody played a bad note. Okay, <laughs> but when it uh, came to uh, more popular forms like you know jazz and and blues, as the jazz as jazz became more popular, the the the, the uh, editorial policies toward music seemed to change, where people were. Uh, paying a lot more attention to what uh, Duke Ellington was doing, let's say, or or some of the other more popular uh, uh, musicians were pl- doing instead of what black musicians who were part of the Western art music tradition would, were doing. That was what, certainly one explanation for that.
0: Um, the other thing that <clears throat> struck me about her time in Chicago is how much women, and women's organizations, both black and white, were uh, really advocated for her music, performed her music, provided venues for, which to, for her to perform. Can you talk a little bit about the role of that, of women in the musical community and how that impacted her um, career?
1: Well, one of the things that I know that they all were experiencing was the sexism of the Western art music traditions, um, you know, infrastructure. And uh, Raymonda paints some very uh, moving scenes of, of, of Florence Price, you know, needing to get some scores copied, needing to get some, you know, to, to prepare for a contest or a competition or a performance. And her community of women would circle around her and, you know, have it all out on the dining room table and they're trying to help their friend. This is before, uh, what's the software, the software, uh, Sibelius. (laughs) This is for Sibelius, where you had to write out the scores by hand. uh, Of of these uh, communities of women who circled around her, Uh, I believe that these women, both black and white, saw in Florence Price's eminent talent, and in the uh, struggles that she had to be seen and heard, they saw themselves and they did circle the wagons and uh, promote someone who they really believed deserved uh, to be heard.
0: Yeah, it was, that's uh, that seems clear when you look at, say, someone like Marian Anderson, who sang her music so often, was a real supporter of hers, Margaret Bonds, who's a, uh, a great composer in her own right was was a supporter and as well someone, I think it sounds like Florence Price was mentored her as well. So you see her being part of this much larger network of women who were supporting each other. That's quite um, evident and maybe surprising to some people as they read the book to see just how important women were in the municipal musical life of various cities. You know, that's not just true in Chicago, it's true throughout the United States and Florence Price really, I think, benefited from those networks that were already um, intact uh, through these music clubs, for instance, that were um, putting on concerts and lectures and things and, and often uh, programmed Price and hired her to, to lecture and play.
1: Absolutely. And they see her raising, you know, children and Trying to have a career. At some point, she was almost homeless, uh, you know, with two children in tow and needed the uh, assistance. I just think that, uh, as I think contemporary readers uh, will be able to identify with the, the Florence Price that uh, Ray Linda paints in this, uh, in this beautiful book.
0: Um. So, just turning for a moment to her music, away from her life, um, she would you call her if you uh, just think about her body of music? Would you class her as an American nationalist composer? I mean, how how would you describe her music to someone who has not uh, heard her work before?
1: I would call it. I, I love this term uh, that Ray Linda uses. Is this uh, Afro Romantic? She certainly, uh, at some points, hinting at uh, at some uh, like the chromaticism and atonalism that was certainly considered the avant-garde when she was uh, uh, doing her, you know, her her strongest and most prolific work. But one of the things that I think. Uh, African-American composers faced at this moment, this moment of uh, modernism, was that particularly during the the depression years, uh, how are you going to get programmed and heard if you write music that is conceived of as inaccessible and for a smaller and smaller uh, academic audience, if we could call it that. So what she was able to do is to take the uh, the a full-bodiedness and the lyrical qualities mm-hmm. of, of, of the spiritual and of Black, quote-unquote, folk music and wed it to the uh, the forms and the language of the Romantic period in uh, Western art music, and to come up with a unique, uh, individualized voice. So that's how I would just des- describe Florence uh, 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 Price's kind of her idiosyncratic language. You know, she belonged to a group of musicians who were were bent on doing doing just that, uh, like William Brandt Steele and Dawson, and them.
0: And others. I, I loved that term Afro romantic as well that she uses to describe Price's music and I thought that um, it was really um, an important observation to say that you can't uh, really analyze her music without using um, new terms and thinking about it in a different frame that to um, that it does it's an injustice to her music to Um, kind of treat uh, the elements from the Black musical tradition as some kind of exoticism or something. I mean, this was embedded in the music. And I think she, um, and that's so clear in her, the way that she analyzes the music as well.
1: Indeed, indeed.
0: Um, So when Brown was writing this book, um, she, she, well, let me back up and say it a different way. She did uh came upon um Florence Price's music according to the book in the late 70s when she was working in um the James Weldon Johnson collection at the uh, Yale University? And she, she's an educated musician, she's a graduate student, and this is not that long after Price had died. But she had never heard of Price before when she happened upon a score that Price had sent to the collection. What do you think accounts for, um, you know, a successful musician, certainly particularly in the 30s, but continuing on in the 40s and 50s? She was still getting performances. She was getting ready to go to Europe to um, hear her music performed when she died. What do you how do you account for her just absolute erasure and and how people just completely forgot her, um, uh, after her death.
1: Well, once you, uh, uh, take into account racism and sexism, uh, you, you kind of left wondering why, (laughs) why, why else? Uh, it, it was just very, very difficult for, uh, People if you were not a a white man in, to get into the canon and and as you say, Raylinda Brown, when she was doing this work as a graduate student, she hadn't just fallen off the turnip truck into the uh, into James Weldon Johnson Collection. She was an educated musician who uh, certainly would have heard of a Florence Price had the educational institutions. Let her in, and this is part of the pioneering effort uh, of this this book, is that you can see from where she was educated, how much music she wrote, how she was uh, celebrated for uh, about twenty years uh, in the highest echelon of american uh, western art music circles for her to drop off is because they didn't want her in there it's the only reason that i can come up with and this is this is why we're still fighting to get uh you know uh to widen 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 the
2: canon.
0: Well, that's a perfect transition to the last issue that I wanted to discuss, which is what's happening with Price's music today. Um, When uh, Raylinda was writing this book, um, it seemed that a lot of her music had been lost. As you said, some of it was published in her lifetime, a fair amount actually, but a lot of it was not. And then um, I think it was in 2009, a trove of her music was discovered uh, in sort of the back room of a, a house um, that she had once lived in and sent to the University of Arkansas. Um, and um, I guess right before she died, Carlene, you mentioned in your afterwards, she was able to inspect the, that collection and see that, that in fact, there was quite a lot of new music there. Um, and, and now she is being performed quite a lot um, she has had several of her works were uh, performed by major orchestras in the last couple of years. she um, we've got new scholarship on her there's I know Samantha Eggie, I believe you pronounce her last name has been working on her Corey Hill at UNC Chapel Hill is writing a dissertation on her um, so do you see this at oh and I should say also Shermer has acquired the catalog to her work and is um, publishing her work. Uh, do you see this as a big change in classical music that Florence Price is returning to the uh, it, both in, in in performance and also Ray Linda's scholarship has um inspired other other people to work on her or but, you know what do you see this moment as for her as a real change or um, something different
1: i'd love to hear carline's idea about this <laughs> yes, i, have, a,
0: thank I you. have an idea <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad you brought her into the discussion. I was thinking we have not heard enough from Carlene. Well, Thank you. But I don't
2: get to hear enough from Dr. Ramsey, anyways. You know, he's a brilliant scholar, so anytime I can listen to him, I'm happy. Um, it has been um, it's been a, a journey to watch how Raylinda championed Florence Price from the moment she found those records of her work and wondered who is this woman. And, and so there has been a slow and gradual, and unfortunately slow and gradual appreciation of Florence Price. And then, yes, I think that we in the academy um, and in the symphonic world, uh, the classical music um, world, are coming to terms with inclusion. And the timing of Linda's book in this time is, um, is not lost on many of us, Um, Florence Price was a brilliant composer. Um, Her work has been available. And so it is now um, an opportunity for educators to be teaching differently, to be more inclusive, or there's no excuse now that symphony orchestras understand if there's a Florence Price, then who else are they um, needing to include in their repertoire? Yeah, uh, I see this as a door opening, but it's also a reckoning right now in the field of music in terms of what does inclusion look like? What does it take? Look how many years it took for Raylinda to bring Florin Price's name everywhere she went, from lectures to program notes to putting it into um, dictionaries of, of um, classical music. Um, it is a time. And the question is, there's Florence Price and who else? So I love this energy. Um, I'm. I don't believe there's a way to turn back now for educators and musicians. Um, Florence Price to me is a door.
1: And and I would add to that is that number one, uh, the first reason for this this uh, uptick in the. Uh, uh, price interest is that the music is so beautiful. It is some gorgeous music. It's moving and in the hands of uh, these uh, dedicated uh, new uh, artists who are picking this stuff up, they know just what to do with it and they're putting so much heart and soul into the uh, performances because I believe they believe that it's uh Florence Price's moment. I'll also say another reason is that the uh classical establishment needs Florence Price. It's not that she needs them so much as it's time as as uh Dr. Brown just said the other Dr. Brown <laughs> is that it's it's time to re-energize the repertoires, what composers we hear from, to expand the uh, the sonic territory of what Western art music means, and who as uh, as we just heard who gets included. Uh, it, it's, it's just time. And fortunately, oh, my, my God, there is this small you know, and growing army of young scholars who are, are discovering Price and the performers uh, who are discovering her. It's just because they've been looking for the life that Florence Price can provide.
0: Well, it is certainly true. I, I agree with you that it's has to be sexism or racism that ke- kept her out of the canon because her, she's clearly one of the great mid-century, 20th century composers of American music. She should be uh, always right up there with the people that we um, associate with that style. So, you know, someone like Erin Copeland. I mean, her music absolutely stands um up against his and other and other sort of white men that we think of from that period, and um, I, I think of, of course that's one reason that people are playing him now, but playing her. But um, I wonder, do you think are are do you worry that people will stop with that? That the New York Philharmonic can say, "Oh, we played Price," and then sort of move on, or do you see a real? Um, commitment on the part of major institutions to go beyond Florence Price to other composers?
1: Well, one of the beautiful things of living during this moment, beyond uh, the pandemic, you know, let's not talk about that. Uh, although uh, Florence Price managed to keep, you know, working through the, uh, the pandemic of 1918. So uh, we see a reckoning, uh, to use Dr. Brown's word. In uh, all of these, uh, say, cultural institutions that have been uh, surrounded by, you know, metaphorical moats, uh, you see it in what exhibitions, museums are committing to. You you see it in this strong surge of young Black women curators who are being hired by these institutions. You see it in uh, what uh, museums and uh, uh, choose to collect these days. We see that happening in an analogous way in the music world, where when people say "Black Lives Matter," it's really about upending all of the uh, conventional and traditional ways that these institutions have kept Black people, women, and so on and so on, outside and uh, trying to get in. So I think it'll be very hard for us to turn back at this point, and we'll keep seeing more and more uh, openness happening. It's not as if there's, there's not a lot of fight that will have to happen but I think the uh, the box is open now and I don't think we can turn back.
0: Um, what do you think, Carlene?
2: Yeah, I, I agree. Um, this past summer it has been extraordinary in terms of the commentary from um, composers. I am seeing um, certainly those of us in, edu- uh, in education and academia. Um, when we talk about Curriculum, who are we including? There are young people that have an expectation now, and Price is a perfect example of um, why haven't we been talking about Price? And now that Relinda's book is there and it gives um, educators even more information about how to explore um, other, other works. And so, as I said, there is no turning back, there is a, an interest among performers, composers, educators, and certainly the young people, the students. There's an expectation now that we bring more to the table than the traditional notion of what a canon is.
0: Well, I think on that call, um, it's a good time to, to end our discussion, but thank you so very much for joining me today. Um, and just as a reminder, my name is Kristen Turner. This is New Books in Music, a part of the New Books Network. And I've been talking to Dr. Guthrie Ramsey and Dr. Carlene Brown uh, about um, heart, The Heart of the Woman, um, The Life and Music of Florence B. Price by Ray Linda Brown. Thank you so much for joining me today.
2: Thank you. You're welcome.